in Matthew chapter 24. As our brother had mentioned, look at chapter 24, which is one of the key chapters in the Bible uh, in regards to end time things. And that's what I want to speak to you about today. So let's look at verse 3. But before you do that, I'm just going to read what Jesus had said in verse 2. He answered them as they were looking over the the area of Jerusalem, and particularly focusing on the temple. The temple was a massive construction. It was beautiful and it was extremely expensive. And some historians have even thought that the, the temple was one of the seven wonders of the world. That's how outstanding of a piece of architect that was. So the disciples were looking over it with Jesus and they're marveling at the beauty of it. And this is Jesus' response. I'm going to read verse Three first, well, verse two. But he said to them, "You see all these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down." What a shock that must have been to the disciples! They are reveling over the beauty of the temple, and Jesus suddenly interrupts that by saying that not one stone is going to be left upon another, that the temple is going to be overthrown. In verse 3, their response to Jesus is this. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. I have something to say to you. You know, when Jesus said that not one stone was upon another, they ask him now, when are these things going to transpire? How interesting that they're looking to Jesus as being able to know when this con- this construction of the temple is going to now be destroyed. Who do you look to for answers for the future, for your life? Do you trust Jesus that He knows the future? He knows your future? He knows the outcome before it ever happens? The disciples didn't hesitate to ask the question, when will this take place? When will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? I trust every one of you has been watching the news, or at least has been to some degree in the last two weeks. If you're living under a rock, you probably don't know what I'm going to talk about. But it's evident that there's massive problems going on right now in the Middle East and in Israel. Oh, let's get the first screen up here. Can we do that? Yeah. How close are we to the world's end? Interpreting the times and what signs should we be looking for? Do you wonder about how the world's going to end? Every time things like this occur in our economy, in our world, there's an alarm that seems to go off and the prophecy experts seem all of a sudden to to step up to the plate and they've got the answers to what's going on and they seem to think that they can kind of like pin the tail on the donkey. You younger people don't know what that is, but... uh, I used to play that when I was a little boy in school. And what you do is you take a pin and you blindly go up to the donkey and you pin that little note somewhere that you're supposed to on the donkey. Well, that's kind of the way it is sometimes with Bible prophetic scholars who want to take a current event and they want to pin it up 
against the Bible and say, see how they match? And therefore we are in the end of the times. And the coming of the Lord is drawing near. The end of the world is closing in. And this might be one of those occasions for sure where this is a drastic, dramatic thing that's taking place right now in Israel. So how do we approach not just this, but just approach the subject of the end of the age? I'm going to give you my first uh, presupposition. My personal presupposition of what I'm going to tell you is based on my millennialist view. I am what you call an amillennialist. You may be a premillennialist. That's a very popular uh, position. You could be a postmillennialist, and probably the majority of you are panmillennialists, meaning th- everything's going to pan out, right, at the end. And that's okay. It, in a sense, it doesn't matter, really, and that's why when we go over our, like a membership class, we want to stress the point that prophecy is not a test of fellowship or communion in, in our local church. We're not making such an issue out of it that if you don't believe as I believe or Pat or Todd or, or any of us believe the leadership of the church, then you're really not in harmony with the body here. No, that's not the case. So I'm not, I'm not going to preach or teach this in such a way that I even want to try to convince you of my position or try to debate your position on the millennium, but it might be helpful at least to explain just briefly what are the millennial views. First of all, the word millennium means a thousand. The word millennium appears six times in one chapter in four verses. Revelations chapter 20, which we're studying incidentally on Tuesdays in the afternoon. Nevertheless, that's the place where the word millennium appears. And like other numbers in the book of Revelation, uh, the number 7, the number 10, the number 12, etc., often mean like other symbolic things in the book of Revelation, the harlot sitting on uh, seven hills uh, with ten heads and all these graphic, almost cartoonish-like pictures that you get that are portraying some apocrypha detail of the future or something that was imminent to be happening is portrayed by John who was given a revelation from Jesus Christ through an angel to him about things that were to come to pass. And it says actually in Revelation 1-3, Blessed is he that readeth the words of this prophecy and those who keep it. There's a blessing for the reading, probably the public reading, and the hearing of the word and those who keep it. And those who keep God's Word, not just the book of Revelation, although I think John is highlighting the importance of the book of Revelation, but it certainly has application to the whole of the Bible. Blessed are those who read the Word. I love the way our brother Seth read the Word. I hope everyone that takes the pulpit and reads the Word. I hope anyone that reads the Word publicly does it in a way that is reverent that has an echo of of inspiration in it. This is a divine book. The Bible's unique. There's nothing comparable to it. And so the reading of it should absolutely just send uh, shivers up our, sw- uh, our spine. It's exciting. It's exhilarating. It's God's Word. There's nothing like it. It should ring in our ears in a powerful way. And I hope it will for you as well. What is this millennialist view? Well, let me briefly give you an overview of the positions, the primary positions 
of the millennium. This, the prominent view, the most popular view, and not the most historically popular view, but one that is common these days, is that when Jesus returns in some hold to a two-stage second coming of Christ, a pre-tribulational coming, a secret rapture, and then a follow of seven years of tribulation with Christ's visible second, second coming. That's a view that was advanced about in the year 1830. Prior to that, it was unknown in church history. No one had ever taught the idea of Christ coming back in a secretive and then in a public way. Those who do hold that hold to a seven-year tribulation period. So they have Christ coming, who's going to rapture the church, take them out of the world, and then there's going to be great, great tribulation upon the world for seven years that will be concluded with Christ's second coming in a public fashion when he will then establish from Jerusalem a millennial reign, a 1,000-year reign. The devil is going to be cast into the abyss for a 1,000 years. At the end, he will be loosed. He will be out to deceive the nations one more time. Then there will be the final battle of Armageddon, and that terminates that millennial period of time. And then the eternal state, the new heavens and the new earth, are the final age of ages Uh, that will conclude all the economical ages that had preceded that. So that premillennial view means pre-Christ coming before a reign of 1,000 years on the earth. And there's a lot of details that I could give you about that view of what's going to transpire for 1,000 years upon the earth. But because that's not my focus today, that would take a whole message in itself to explain that. And I think I did about a year and a half ago in, in a in a series that I did on end time things. But that's one view. Christ is coming and then setting up a 1,000 year reign here upon the earth and then it closes and then the eternal state begins. The post-millennial view is that prior to Christ's coming, there's going to be a, a millennialish age, a golden age, not necessarily literally 1,000 years, but a period of time when the earth, the globe, will be Christianized. Not necessarily all saved, but the earth will be so influenced by Christianity that the world is going to come to this sort of unison position about Christ and Christianity, and it will rule in a way that it will become like a golden age, an age of not perfection, but an age of peace and tranquility. And that will be concluded by Christ's final coming at the end of that millennial age. The premillennialists hold to a literal 1,000 years. The postmillennialists hold to a long period of time. They don't, they don't get specific on the exact amount of years that that will be in length but they simply refer to it as a millennial age, a golden age upon the earth. In the premillennial case, Christ comes before it, sets it up. In the postmillennial case, it's sort of set up in advance, and then Christ comes and the eternal state begins. Either way, the, millennial, the, the eternal age starts or, and goes on forever after this period of time. Now, what is the amillennialist view? The amillennialist view, which simply means ah, not millennial, 
Really, the amillennialist is saying we don't believe in a literal 1,000-year millennial reign. We do believe in reign. I believe in the reign of Christ. But I believe that that reign is not a physical reign, but a spiritual reign that's going on right now. When God exalted His Son and set Him at His own right hand and crowned Him with glory and honor and gave Him a name which is above every name so that when we proclaim the gospel, we're saying that Jesus Christ is Lord. Right now He's Lord of heaven and earth. He says, all authority is given unto me. Go ye therefore and teach all nations and preach the gospel to every creature. Why? Because Jesus is King. And those who believe on Him have, who have been born again are born into the kingdom of God who has the King, Jesus, reigning over them. And Psalm 110 says that Jesus is going to sit at the right hand of God, which He's doing right now, until I make thine enemies thy footstool. And during this time period, He is set to rule over the midst of the nations. And that's what Jesus is doing now. That's the amillennial view. We don't believe in the physical, literal 1,000 years or a physical, literal period of time where there's going to be a, 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 an age where the lion and the lamb will sit together. A child that dies at 100 will be considered an infant and they'll live for hundreds and hundreds of years and maybe never die in that millennial period. A lot is underneath the surface of this big subject that I'm talking about, but I'm just trying to give you an idea because of what I'm going to say as far as trying to answer the question or at least stirring up our minds about how will the world end? When I was younger, I don't hear that so often, but there was, there was a lot of talk about the world ending and how the world was going to end. And with the atom bomb and Nagasaki and Hiroshima and thousands and thousands were blown up with the atom bomb and atom bomb was kind of a new thing in the in the 1900s and there was the worry about the possibility that the earth could be blown up and there was a lot of concerns uh, with with Russia where they were at, at, in the back in the 50s the Cold War and so on and it kind of paralyzed the world in some ways and it made everybody feel insecure and unsure about what the future was going to hold. So there was the idea in the minds of many people about the world ending. The world ending. How was it going to end? One way for sure we know how it's, going to, how it's not going to end is how. It's not going to end by what? Water, right. Because there was a rainbow that was put in the sky, which is a token of God to, uh, uh, to us from God that He would never destroy the earth again by water or flood. But by fire, that's another story, and we'll get into that in a little bit. So my presupposition is, number one, that uh, I'm coming from an amillennial perspective. And the reasons why, here's, here's some examples of scriptures that I like to use. Jesus said this in Matthew 19, 28, Truly I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit down upon His throne of glory, that's an earthly position, not a heavenly one now, you having followed me, you also will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So I want to get you get this word regeneration across to you that occurs at Christ's second coming. Next, Acts 3.19, Peter's preaching says, Repent and then turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that the times of, there it is again, refreshing, may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time for the final restoration of all things as God promised long ago through His holy prophets. 
final restoration. Is that final restoration referring to a 1,000-year period of time or is it a reference to the eternal state when there'll be a new heavens and a new earth? So what will happen at Christ's second coming? Here's 2 Peter 3, which I think is the clearest passage. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise. The elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. As you look forward to the day of God in speed its coming, that day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. When will that happen? Obviously, that's not going to be at the precipice of some millennial period of time on earth, but rather the day of the Lord will initiate this destruction of the elements melting and the fire destroying the heavens as they now is when Jesus comes as a thief in the night. Thieves generally break in at night. That's the appropriate time. They don't break in during the daytime. It's the nighttime that is the time that is to be feared. Okay. Let's move on now. Let's look at... So I just want you to understand that that's the presupposition that I'm coming from. And it really doesn't make a whole lot of difference when we talk about the rest of this, but I just want you to know that there's not, in my opinion, after the second coming of Christ, a a, a seven-year tribulation and then another second coming of Christ and then a setting up of a rule of Jesus in Jerusalem and the rebuilding of the temple, which is problematic because we have a Melchizedek priest who lives and reigns forever and ever, and how can he be reigning as the Melchizedek priesthood and then have an Aaronic priesthood operating in the temple? It just doesn't make sense to reinstitute the sacrificial system, to build another temple with all of the, the, the physical furniture pieces in them again, an offering of animal sacrifices, and to shed their blood, and to expect that that bloodshed is going to be for the remission of sins. That's how uh, the book of Ezekiel interprets those days if they're to be understood as a millennial period. There's a problem there. And and I've written something that I've, uh, on my own, in my own studies of this subject, a hundred problems or a hundred difficulties with the dispensational position of the two-stage coming of Christ, but I'm not going to name any of them right now. I just want to generalize for the moment that... uh, whether you believe that or not, you must believe, of course, that everything is going to, like Jesus said, heaven and earth shall pass away. Heaven and earth shall pass away. Politicians and governances around the world, they're looking to to try to make the world better, I suppose, ultimately, because they think if if their government takes over the world, then the world will be fine. If this government takes over the world, the world will be fine. If we can take care of climate control and all these other things, as if they are the gods now that are going to change everything and bring everything into a utopic state, uh, they've been fooled, of course, and that's a folly of the highest order. All right, let's move on. So the first hypothesis... Jesus, could he come at any moment? Did the first century writers, the apostles and disciples, inspired by the Holy Spirit, who referenced about the second coming of Christ? For instance, Titus 2.13 says, Looking for that blessed hope in the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. There's a passage that's indicating that there's an expectation of Christ's coming. But could Christ have come in the first century? Or did things have to transpire before Christ would come? 
One very simple example we've already read, and we read it in Luke, I mean in Matthew 24, but it's corresponding passages in Luke 21 when Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple. So the temple had to be destroyed before Jesus could come back, right? And that temple we know historically, we're accurate that Jesus saying about this temple being destroyed happened in 70 A.D., Jesus rose from the dead and ascended on high roughly around 29 or 30 A.D. So 40 years after Jesus announces the temple's destruction, sure enough, it occurs. So Christ could not have come before that prophecy was going to be fulfilled, right? That's one example. Let me give you some others. Acts 1.8. Jesus says, or Acts 1.8, Luke writes by, by putting it this way, that about the Holy Spirit, He shall come with power... You shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. So the gospel had to go universally because Christ is ordering that to happen so he could not have interrupted it by coming before that occurs. Similarly, what we read in Matthew twenty-four fourteen, Jesus says, This gospel shall be preached in all the world. And then shall the end come. So the gospel had to be preached worldwide. Christ could not have come before that was completed. Another simple illustration is Acts twenty-three eleven. The Lord said to him, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have witnessed unto me in Jerusalem, so must thou also be a witness of me in Rome. When the Lord told Paul that, he said, look it, I know the future, Paul, and I know you're not going to just be a witness here in Jerusalem of me, but you're going to bring the gospel to Rome and you're going to be a witness to me there. How long was it from when Jesus said that in Acts 23.11 to when Paul went to Rome? About two years. And during that two-year period, Paul wrote some of these epistles that we have about Christ coming in an imminent thought of his return. But we know know that Christ could not have returned before Paul had gone to Rome and witnessed there as a Christian believer in the city of Rome. And then how about this one? John 21. Jesus said to Peter, when you were young, you went wherever you want, but when you're older, you're going to be taken where you don't want to go and you're going to be girded about. Some believe that Uh, Jesus is telling me you're going to be crucified. And uh, the uh, the legend is that Peter was crucified upside down. I don't know about that. It's possible. But nevertheless, the Lord was predicting Peter's death. And when Peter writes his second epistle, he says, this second epistle I write unto you, knowing that I must shortly put off this tabernacle. In other words, it's coming. I'm getting closer to the time that Jesus told me that I'm going to be dying. And when did Peter write this epistle? About 65 A.D., 35 years after Jesus rose from the dead, and maybe a few more years even than that. So it's obvious that Christ, the hypothesis that Jesus could come at any moment, has to be qualified with some intervening events that had to take place. Next. Second hypothesis, the Jews must return to their land. Now, those 
And we're going to talk more about the Jews back in their land. We'll talk more about Gaza. This is probably going to be a part part one of part two will be next week because I I was going through this. I said, no way can I get this in. And I think this is an important topic. And I hope you're interested in it because I think it has some relativity to what's going on in our world today and how we maybe can understand uh, the uh, Palestinian-Israeli conflict going on right now. So... The hypothesis that the Jews must return to the land, and here's a couple of passages that could be utilized for that belief. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. I will take the Israelites out of the nations where they have gone. I will gather them from all around and bring them back into their own land. Ezekiel 37, 37, 21. Some people believe then that when the Jews, after the Holocaust, for instance, many of them came from Europe, uh, Poland, Hungary, Russia, and so on. There was a flood of Jews that went went back to their homeland, and we'll get more into that. And therefore, they think that this is now a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Or take Ezekiel twenty thirty five to thirty eight. As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, I will bring you from the nations and gather you from the countries where you have been scattered with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with outpoured wrath. And I will make you pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. Seems like a reinstallation of the Jews back in the land. These these two verses do say that clearly. But here's the problem. When was that said? It was said when Israel was going in or were in exile. These verses are promising to Israel that you're going to come back into the land. When they were exiled in 722 B.C. under um, um, uh, the king of Assyria. I forget his name. It's a funny pronunciation. Anyway, well, when, it, when the Israelites were removed, the northern kingdom was removed, and then the southern kingdom was renew, removed. When Babylon moved in under Nebuchadnezzar, they leveled the city. The people, like, like the ones up north, they were all exiled, exiled. So the land was essentially barren. But here's a promise that's stated while they are in exile about their returning back to the land. And as we read in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, that's exactly what's happening. They go back and they repopulate the land. And they build the temple and they get re-jumped, you could say, back into their Judaistic practices and their Levitical practices. So that, I think, is a, a false hypothesis that the Jews, using these verses, had to return to the land. Let's look at the next uh, hypothesis. The land promised is yet to be fulfilled. It's claimed that in the Old Testament, a promise that was made to Abraham, which is true, that he promised to him a land that they would inherit. We know from Hebrews 11 and other passages that Abraham was a pilgrim and a stranger in the land. These all died in faith, and you have the references of all of them in the book of Hebrews, uh, not having received the promise. And one of those promises had to do with the promised land. It had not been inherited by Abraham, particularly Isaac or Jacob, the patriarchs, namely. So they say, no, 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 they, the Israel never inherited the land. But look at these two passages, which I think refutes that hypothesis. The Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers and they took possession of it and they settled there. The Lord gave them rest on every side just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Every one was fulfilled. 
Joshua 21, 43 to 45, and now the next one, 1 Kings 4, 24 to 25. Solomon had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates from Tifsa to Gaza, over all the kings west of the Euphrates, and he had peace on all sides around him, and Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. I don't think that those two verses can be easily refuted to deny the fact that Israel had inherited the land that was promised to them from Abraham. You can search the New Testament. You will not find any holdout of promises to Israel of a future inheritance of the land. Land promises are no longer significant. As we read last week in the Gospel of John, when Jesus says to the Samaritan woman, who really believes that she is on sacred ground, and this is where true worship takes place. Just like the Muslims, they think that true worship comes from through Ishmael, not through Isaac. And therefore, they are the ones, and they have the place. Well, the Samaritans similarly believe that they had the place, and that this was a true place of worship. But Jesus says, the hour is coming, as we said last week, and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth, that neither here on this mount nor in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 4, 24 to 6 says that that Jerusalem, which now is, and Paul's writing around uh, 55 or so uh, A.D., is saying that Jerusalem, which now is, the now is Jerusalem at that time, is in bondage with her children, but the Jerusalem which is from above is our mother. Not a Jerusalem that is below, but a Jerusalem that is from above. That's where God is worshipped in spirit and in truth. Not a physical place that's going to be any longer considered to be a sanctified location. Jesus says in Matthew 18 and 20, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Not in Jerusalem, not in Samaria, not in Rome, not in New York City. It's where the two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. There is no physical, literal location where the Lord Jesus goes in there only. But every place where God's people gather in His name, He assures us that He is in the midst of us there. So the idea of Jerusalem, 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 even though we want to call the property of the land of Israel as the Holy Land, do you know that the Jews call it the Holy Land, the Muslims call it the Holy Land, and the Christians call it the Holy Land? Let's move on. Now, let's get down to the nitty-gritty here in the next 10 or 15 minutes. So this is an ancient map, but why I brought this up is this is where Gaza is then and today. The Gaza Strip, I'll show you in the next uh, slide uh, more about the Gaza Strip, but this would be the northern, let's say, the northern part of Gaza, Gaza City. This is a place from which the the rockets are being launched. And remember the, the two major places that were hit hard? What was it? Ashdod and Ashkelon. Do you realize that those two cities are former cities of Philistine territory? And I probably should mention now um, the land that, where, that where the conflict is going on now between the Israelis and the Palestinians. Uh, is, it, is it the land of Israel or is it the land of Palestine? 
It depends on what side you're on, I suppose. If you're Palestinian, you want to consider all of this property, property as Palestine property. If you're an Israeli, you want to consider all of this land as the land of Israel. The possibility of a two-state solution, which is what, what the, the govern, governments of the world and United Nations and America, even Joe Biden said the other day, trying to promote the two, two, um, two, uh, two-state, uh, occupation of the land by, by the Jews and the Palestinians has never worked. It's never worked. And what's going on now is one of the proofs that it's not working. And there's, a, there's an irritation under the surface that is supreme. And it's being exhibited in ways like we have just been watching in the news the last couple of weeks. What happened to Jerusalem after the, the New Testament? Not too many people know really what, what happened. Jesus said the temple's going to be destroyed. That's like, pulling, that's like pulling your heart out of your body, if you will. You can't exist without it. Judaism couldn't exist without a temple. They had to have a system of approaching God, and they knew that it had to be bloodshed. They needed an altar for sanctification. They needed a high priest for intercession. And now this is gone. The whole system, the the, the legs of the table are knocked out from within them, from under them. What do they do now? Well, many of them left. They were forced to scatter after 70 A.D. Revolts continued up to 73 A.D., Masada, which I've been to, is an amazing place. If you go to Israel, be sure you go to Masada. That was the last place of revolt where the Jews were finally put to... Well, they actually all committed suicide, over a thousand of them, because they didn't want to die at the hands of the Romans that finally were making their way up to, 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 to Masada, this very high elevated mountain. Some of them remained in the land. Revolts continued against Rome, finally in the revolt of 135 called the Bakokba Revolution, Israel was finally eliminated, exterminated, if you will. Many of them died and many of them were scattered all around the world. There was just a few squatters that remained in Jerusalem. The Italians took it over, the Romans, and they renamed the city from Palestine, from, excuse me, from the, they renamed the city of Jerusalem the city of Palestina. Capitolina Palestina. The capital is Palestina. Where does the word Palestina come from? Many scholars believe that it comes from the word Philistines, that it was an insult to the Israelites to name it, not the land of Israel, but the land of the Philistines or the city of the Philistines, Jerusalem, because that was the main city of of the whole land. So the Jews are exiled in 135 A.D., and the land becomes basically a, a, a no-man's land. They were infiltrated by um, Christians, by Bedouins, by, by uh, Arabs. But there was, there was no statehood that existed at that time. Just people were living in their own settlements. There were many settlements throughout all of this territory. But now let's... Let's go up a little bit. The, the, the Muslims. When was Muhammad? In the 600s. After his death, there was the Crusades. They want to take Jerusalem over. There's claims that, that, uh, that Muhammad made his final journey to Jerusalem, and he actually ascended into heaven from Jerusalem. That's why the Temple Mount is considered sacred property by, by, the, by the Muslims. And they actually have the Dome of the Rock, which is where they believe that 
that uh, Muhammad himself actually ascended into heaven. So in their religion, that's a very sacred spot, Jerusalem to them. And they actually have rights and possession of, of the Temple Mount, which was given to them, as I understand, in 1967. So anyway, there, there were the crusaders that came in a, a, around 1,095 or so. They came to take over the city as well. There were, there were battles over and over again over Jerusalem and over the land of Israel. But no one really had full possession until the Ottoman Empire, the Turks, in 1517. They, like, sort of like Alexander the Great, they took over large portions of lands in Israel or Palestine was one of those territories that they had possession over. They had rule over them until the World War I. And at the end of World War I, Britain ended up having the rights and rule over the land of Israel of, or Palestine, whichever one you want to call it. I guess you can say from each, whatever historical position you want to utilize, it was the land. We're talking about the same piece of territory. So the Brits had, had rights over it. So uh, Lord Balfour, who was a foreign secretary of, 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 of the British, had come up with a declaration stating that this land now could become the national home for the Jewish people. In 1881, the Zionist movement began among Jews, a desire to go back to Israel, to their homeland. This was an anti-religious movement. It was a pol- totally political, it was not religious. The ones that were living in the land in 1881, namely Jerusalem, in some other area out, out, out in the way settlements, there were approximately 20,000 Jews in 1881 that occupied the whole land versus the the Arabs were 500,000 that were living in the land at the time. There were also, this, these people were forgotten. that We also had the nominal Christians. You had the Orthodox, you had the Catholics, and you have some other breeds of, of Christians, uh, denominations that are also in the land. They actually outnumbered the Jews by double. There was about 50,000, quote, Christians in the land of Israel in 1881. But the concentration is now with the Jews coming back, coming to their land. Uh, Lord Balfour gave them that sort of like, you could say, national invitation for them to return. And they started trickling back. And then in 1935, you have what is called, and this came again from England, the Peel Commission. This was the first time of mentioning of the dividing of the land because there were always these little revolts that were going on between the Arabs and the Israelis. It was a constant nuisance. The, the English were getting disgusted with it, didn't know how to handle it. There was a commission that was established called the Peel Commission, and they proposed to the Palestinians and Israelis that they would divide the land and give a portion to them and a portion to the other. That never went over well. Then, then you have the breakout of World War II, and things during that time period, because of the commotion that was going on in the world, there was not much emphasis or concentration on the land of Israel at the time, and things were fairly calm considering. The United Nations, because England had a hard time handling uh, the, the territory, they decided to turn it over to, to the United Nations. Now the United Nations steps in, and they have more power, of course, and they have a stronger voice. They are, they are now going to parcel out the land. By this time in 1946-47, there were 650,000 
um, people that were now in the land, and a third of the population, again, was Jewish, only a third. It was decided that Israel was going to be given 55% of the land, and the Arabs were going to get the 45% of the land. Well, you can see how they would, would react to that. The reality is a lot of that 55% of the land was desert land. It wasn't land that you would want to build on. It wasn't desirable land at all. So war breaks out, as you all know that, which is big, in 1948. Other nations got involved. Israel comes out the winner, and they now then declare themselves for the first time as an independent nation, the nation of Israel. They fly the flag, and they're classified this is a self-acclamation that they are not, not. They have now gained statehood. To this day, of course, the Arabs reject the idea that Israel has rights to the land and that they are the, the genuine and only occupants of the land and that they cannot claim it as their own. This is what's causing the feud. This is what caused those rockets to fire to Ashdod and Ashkelon and they're heading towards Tel Aviv. Just to give you an idea too, Tel Aviv is the largest populated city in the land of Israel, close to a million, and for the most part, they are a very highly secular city. The Jews of Jerusalem consider it to be the city of sin, and they actually go there to try to proselytize their own Jewish countrymen to come into Judaism. But there's, there's a lot of friction there. It's estimated that only about 30% of Jews are actually religious in the land of Israel. It's a minority group. They don't have the, the kind of effect that you would think. And I think Christians, in our simplicity, we think, oh, the Jews, the Jews, the Jews. The Jews are not united at all. They're very divided between not just secular and religious, but you have the Orthodox, you have the Reformed, you have the Conservative, you have the ultra-ultra-Orthodox, you have the Hasidic Jews. So you have a variety of denominations among the Jews. And if they're anticipating building the temple and having a high priest, I'm not sure what what group the high priest is going to come from. That would be a major conflict among themselves. Well, next week I really want to talk about the signs of the second coming of Christ. Because what happens when Christ returns, and again, I'm giving it to you, to you from a, a millennial perspective. When Christ comes, it ends. It ends everything on this world as we know it. There's a, there, there, and we're going to talk about what kinds of things can we be looking for? What can we expect? Because in Thessalonians, the word was out, not by Paul, but some were forfeiting his writings, saying, what, not, not forfeiting his writings, um, what's the word? Huh? Forging. forging his writings, that's the word. Forging his writings as if they were coming from him, saying that the Lord had already come. He says, that's nonsense. It can't come unless, and we'll talk more about what are the alesses that have to happen before Christ can return. And the belief that, and understanding that when Christ returns, he's going to set the record straight. There'll be the institution now. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heaven shall pass away with a great noise. The elements shall melt with fervent heat. And we, according to his promise, we look for a new heavens and a new earth. And that's going to happen at the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Anyway, I hope this kind of whets your appetite. Keep reading the Bible. I'm not saying that I have all the answers for sure. Don't count on everything that I say or believe necessarily to be what you have to believe. 
But we do need to believe that Christ is coming again. That the Lord has the earth in His hands. This world is in His hands. Uh, the the uh, Hamas, the Hezlebah, you name it. He's over it all. He was over Nero in the first century. We can't deny that he's over all of this. Why he does what he does? His footsteps are not known, the Bible says. His ways are past finding out. We just sit there and we're in a waiting posture and say, Even so, come Lord Jesus. What should our attitude be towards a Jew? We want to see them saved. We want... Uh, the, the most favorable witnesses that I've ever had and enjoyed the most is talking to Jewish people, especially intelligent Jewish people who might know their Bible and open up the Scriptures with them and talk to them about who is this prophet that Moses said that the Lord your God is going to raise up unto you one like unto me. Him shall you hear. Who is that new prophet that's supposed to come? Who is the Messiah? It's not Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one who fulfilled those promises that one would be wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities and the punishment of our peace was going to be upon Him. I have believed on Christ. I'm saved. I'm now a child of Abraham by faith in Christ. I'm in the spiritual family. I'm a Jew inwardly by the circumcision that Jesus performed upon my heart. We should love the Jews. We should love the Arabs. We should love all people in that we want to see everybody evangelize. The LBGTQ community, whoever has a soul in their body, they need to hear that Christ died for the ungodly. And our hopes and desires are that they will be repentant sinners, that they will come to Christ, they will know Him as the King of kings and Lord of lords of their life, and that they have a relationship with the true and the living God, and they can say, my life is bound up in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank You that, Lord, we don't understand why things happen the way they do. And, Lord, we ourselves get terrified, Lord, when we see uh, fellow human beings uh, handled the way they have been, uh, beaten, kidnapped, beheaded, put to death, burnt. Oh God, we're humble. It's, it's horrifying, Lord. Lord, have mercy, we pray on many in Israel, in Palestine, Lord, and what's transpiring. Lord, you know what's going to happen before it happens. We don't, Lord. But if World War III breaks out and there's a Middle East crisis that raises itself to a level where many nations, including the United States, is involved, Lord, we're going to trust you nevertheless because we know, Lord, that you're going to come and we say even louder and louder, even so come, Lord Jesus, when, as you said, heaven and earth will pass away and we know that that will transpire according to your plan and your purposes. Receive our praise and thanks, O God, in Jesus' precious and worthy name. Amen. Let's close.